Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present this young lady on a week or and a half or so ago and she was so much fun that we wanted to have her back and talk some more uh about uh, medieval times not the restaurants I'm not <laughs> no. and and what and what she does with uh the information that she's got from from the history books and i, I just i love talking about this because i learned so much though well, i it turns out and just so you know we're talking about the medieval times, which is roughly the year 500 to 1500, about a thousand years in there. But if you're wondering, you know, what we think we know about that time, we absolutely don't have any idea about because it's, it's completely different because I would say something and say, no, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. And, Gently. <laughs> and, and you were very kind. You were very kind. But it was like, I felt at the end of the, the episode, I felt like I was, um, less than um, astute. And I thought that I knew a lot about that time period, but I really didn't. And so that's, it's, it's really good. It's really good to know is up to, and including, we did talk about how, if you were in a castle, how you ended up going to the bathroom. So we did talk about that as well. So, uh, cause it's, you know, it's a fact of life. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, Danielle, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. And by the way, if you want to go to her website, go to Danielle uh, Sobolski and uh, I'll spell that for you. So it's uh, D-A-N-I-E-L-E C-Y-B-U-L s-k-i-e and um she is a perfect guide to talk to you about um anything about the medieval stuff that went on and you you really have set yourself up for being the foremost expert on this would you consider yourself one of the foremost experts on oh, well, i don't know about films? I don't know about one of the foremost experts on it, but I am visible, definitely <laughs> visible now because I have a podcast of books and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I I would like to call myself an expert at this point because I've been studying it so long. But one of the foremost, I don't know about that. I know a lot of very smart people. And I've been waiting all week to ask you this question. Uh oh, <laughs> what is it? Who, if you had to pick one character from that thousand year time period um real or imagined as your favorite who would it be oh that's a tough one i have two i have one real and one imagined so the oh, real okay. person is a woman named christine de pisan who might be the first professional writer that we know of from the, the Middle Ages. And so she was a really interesting woman. She was born in Italy. She moved to France because her dad was uh, basically a doctor at the French court. And she was very learned. And she had this, this beautiful arranged marriage. She loved her husband. They had a few kids. And then he died. And she had to find a way to make a living. And so she started to write. And she wrote just the most amazing stuff. So she wrote a few things that were really conventional. She wrote some verse. She wrote a chronicle of one of the kings, which is still pretty amazing that she got asked to write this. But she also wrote books in defense of women. So there was a lot of misogynist stuff happening back then. People were relying on really literal readings of the Bible that suggested that men were in charge of women. And Christine 
while she was still following Christian doctrine, she was pushing back and saying, you know, women are just as smart. We just don't get educated as often. And she wrote this really amazing book called The City of Ladies that goes point by point of all the misogynist stuff that people were saying at the time and refutes it. So she was a really, really amazing person. So that's my was, real person. What was her name again? Christine de Pisan. And was she French? She, well, she was Italian, but was raised mostly in the French court. So she spoke both and she did most of her writing in French, as far as I know. See, then now that's a really big deal, isn't it? Because yeah. in those days, women could not write, uh, women were not allowed to be on stage, any of that stuff. Yeah, well, this is before people were routinely on stage. So most of the plays that were happening at this time were put on by a traveling group of actors or they were put on as a celebration of moments in the Christian year at which like everybody would be involved in putting on these massive shows. So it's not the same as Shakespeare's day when you couldn't have women on the stage. But it is true that women, while they could write, they were not paid for it. Not usually. She was she's the first professional writer, I think, that we know of, at least currently, that was making an actual living off that. And so she talks about her experience in her books. So you can learn so much about France around the turn of 1400. She wrote about Joan of Arc. That's really interesting, too. So she I would love to sit down with her and just chat. Oh, that would be interesting. That would yeah. be interesting. because even the story of Joan of Arc is got its its basis in fable doesn't it well or is it, more, is it is it more true to 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 what we know to be uh historically f factual yeah so most of the stuff that we know about joan of arc is actually based on the trial transcript so when she was put on trial as a heretic we have the transcript from that so we know it's not word for word because back in the day um, lawyers used to use or clerks who were in the court used to write down things kind of in shorthand and they'd write it in Latin, even though people were speaking French at the time. So it's not exactly word for word, but it's very close. So most of the stuff we know about Joan comes from the trial transcript where you had people from the church who were saying, where were you born? When did you first hear the voices? You know, what do you, what makes you think that they're real? And so you have some really spicy retorts from her saying, I already answered that. I'm not going to answer that anymore. Or she gets sarcastic with them and they get pretty upset about that. So it's the transcripts that we have that tell us much about her life. So it's not really fable, although I think that if you watch a movie about her or something like that, you probably have quite a lot of um, fabulous elements in it. Now that brings up one of the other things that I that, that, that we covered a little bit last time, but but not really was that when they put someone to death, like like uh, by burning, yeah, was there a specific um, protocol that they used, or explain what that was? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is you have to bear with me for a second. So most of the time, there were two ways that you were pass through the legal court system, right? So you had the king's justice and you had the church's justice. And things like blasphemy, heresy, those were prosecuted by the church, but the church was not allowed to kill people, right? It's against the Ten Commandments. So they would hand the person over to the secular court, the king's court, and say the ideas that they're passing around are a danger to society. So basically this person's a traitor. So we need you to get rid of them. So it was kind of like one hand washing the other hand. So they would hand them over... 
Yeah, to be executed because the church could not execute people. And then I think there's a lot of misconceptions about how often this happened, who this happened to. But if you were to recant, like you were to say, I made it all up. I, I'm not actually believing this stuff. Like Joan recanted. They brought her to the stake and she said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, it was devils. It wasn't angels. I take it all back. And they brought her back to the prison and she wasn't burnt. But they really kind of stacked the deck so that eventually she put on men's clothes again, which she was not allowed to do. And that at that point, she was so upset by the way she was treated afterwards. She said, you know, you told me you're going to treat me well and you didn't. I don't care. And she took back her story about the voices. And at that point, she was burnt. So basically, if you were to stumble and say something that the church was against at the time and you were to take it back or you were to repent or you were to confess, you would be fine. You might get a punishment, a small punishment, but you wouldn't be burned for that. The people who got burned were the people who were like not going to ever give up their stories. They were a danger to the community, to the Christian community. Those were the people that got burned. And Joan was never going to make it out of that because she was really uh, a political agitator. So that story is very complicated. If you want to learn more about that, the best book on that, in my opinion, is by Helen Castor. Just I think it's just called Joan of Arc. Well, now she was who 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 was she was in prison. Where was she imprisoned? Was it France or was it England? In France, but that's a good question because at that time, that part of France was taken over by the English. It was during the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, so it's it's tricky because much of continental France had changed hands. Sometimes it belonged to the English and sometimes it belonged to the French, but she was burned by the English, really. But the, Fran the French did not want her back at that point because she was making trouble for them already. <laughs> so it's complicated. Basically, the short answer is it's complicated, but people were not burned for just, you know, sneezing the wrong way. Well, and the same thing happened to um, uh, Jesus uh, of Nazareth when uh, he was convicted by the Pharisees, and but they, could, they weren't allowed to actually uh, kill anybody. So they had to go to Pontius Pilate to get his blessing and to get and for him to assign whatever punishment was going to be made. Yeah, I've so, never actually made that connection, but you're right. It's it's a similar story where you're saying this is a traitor. You can execute them now. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, hadn't, and, I hadn't made that connection. And by the way, please do, uh, since you're they're a traitor and they and or they are a religious uh, rabble rouser. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to do their own. We don't like them anymore. So um, please, please kill them. And we'll and we'll and we'll stand by while you do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but now was in the in the process of the of the burning at the stake itself. Was that designed to be a slow, gruesome thing or was it, it, it or did they have a protocol so that so much wood and how high it had to be and any of that kind of stuff? I haven't come across measurements, but you know, I've never looked for them. So maybe they are out there, but it was more about purgation, right? You had to get rid of this person as, as much as possible. If you leave them behind, if you leave their bones behind, they could be worshiped as a martyr or something like that. So it's like purging them from the community. So it's not really about being torturous. I don't think they cared about it being torturous at that point, you're going to be burning in hell anyway, they believed. So it didn't really matter. But I think it was more about purging the person from the community rather than causing them a lot of suffering. 
So they wanted to make that fire hot, hot, hot and high, high, high so that it would burn them completely. Well, I've heard some things about about how people who were friends of these heretics might put things on that were smokier so the person might die of the smoke first and have less suffering. But I, I don't know where I've seen that. So don't quote me on that. People should do their own research. <laughs> See, this I, is why I'm not one of the foremost experts. <laughs> well, but this is one of those things. It's like it's like people are saying, "My God, Kevin, aren't you a little morbid talking about burning at the stake and the protocol and all that?" You know, it's like, but it's interesting because I, most of the things that they did, they did specifically with a reason and why, and and how it was going to, what the outcome was going to be, and why they did what they did. And for the reasons that they did, like last time we talked about uh, a drawn quarter, uh, mm -hmm. which is they did that specifically for a reason yeah. um, that they could then show everybody. Uh, see, here's William Wallace's leg. Don't do what he did. Your leg's going to be in the, over there, too. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good point. And I appreciate that you bring that you're bringing that up again, is that nobody did these things just out of sadism. Like there were reasons for it. We may not agree with the reasons for it, but people did have reasons for it. And I think it's important to understand a culture, you know, before you just write it off as being sadistic. Exactly. Because there are different times frames and like in the Count Dracula, he was not in the Middle Ages. No, not that I know of. I think he was a bit later. He, now that's a, that's a guy that liked to impale people. I think there was, uh, yeah. that, was, that was, but that was not a standard practice in the in the medieval <laughs> in the Middle Ages. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that's why he's legendary because he was unusual <clears throat> and really disturbing, and and disturbed, and disturbed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mostly look at Western Europe. So what was happening in Vlad's area? I don't know all that much about. Yeah. So who was your next of uh, the other favorite one that is a uh, um, that is a myth or, or a legend? OK, this is super easy. It's Sir Gawain. And this is uh, he's one of the Knights of the Round Table. Gawain is his well, you pronounce it can pronounce it Gawain as well. He uh, is Arthur's nephew. And my favorite medieval poem is Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. And this has just become a movie which sticks really close to the poem in some ways and strays from it in other ways. But basically, this knight who is a, a, just the epitome of chivalry is given a very difficult choice. He's he's part of a, a competition. So this Green Knight shows up at Christmas time and he's like, I'm challenging someone to a head cutting competition. You can cut off my head. And then in one year, I'll cut off your head. And so Gawain steps up because he's brave enough to do it. He cuts off the Green Knight's head. And sure enough, the Green Knight rides away with it and says, see you next year. <laughs> so <laughs> the next year, Gawain has to go and find the Green Chapel where this guy is and make an appointment. And basically, he, yeah, he has to make a decision. He is given a magic token from somebody and he's meant to give it back. But he's meant to give it away. And he has to decide whether he wants to dishonor himself by not giving away the gift or dishonor himself by like running away from the challenge. So is he going to save his own life or is he going to do the right thing, which is to give up this gift that he's been given according to these rules? And so what I really like about this poem is it gets at the complicated nature of 
having these chivalric ideals, right? It's, it's great to make promises to this person, that person, and try and live as a good person. But what happens when your life is on the line? Are you going to follow the rules of chivalry? Are you going to save your own life? And so it's not only a really beautiful poem in the way it's written, but it's also an interesting poem in the, the subject matter. And uh, I don't know if people know this, but J.R.R. Tolkien didn't just write like Lord of the Rings. He was also a medieval scholar. And he translated this into a really beautiful translation that people can read in, in modern English. So if you want to read this poem, you can find Tolkien's translation and it's really beautiful. That's pretty amazing, quite frankly. <laughs> because, you know, because we think of things like uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table as being myth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it may have been, but... The, were there elements of truth to it? Do you think because is isn't in in your in your research and the isn't a, a lot of things that we would call myth now don't they have an element of truth to them somewhere along the way or do they just make shit up? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. I think that usually you have the grain of an idea, a story, and you run with it, and it gets bigger than it is. Like. There were other outlaws, real outlaws, that have probably informed the character of Robin Hood, for example. And he was probably not a real guy. But some of the stories may have been based on real outlaws. And then same with Arthur. I don't think there's any evidence personally. And you're going to get like email about this probably. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that he was a real English king. There were some people that you might be able to say possibly fit that mold. But the thing is, all of the stories about Arthur are mostly reflections of a much later society. Like, even if he was a real guy, he doesn't bear any resemblance to the guy who was riding around with Lancelot and having tournaments. Like, that is a, like, that is a time period that's separated by almost a thousand years. So, you know, he maybe there was a guy, <laughs> but I, he wouldn't resemble who he is in the stories. Do we have any idea where the code of chivalry came from? No, you have the most interesting questions. Okay, so I'm just writing a book on chivalry. I'm in the copy editing stage. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, it's coming out in September. But there is no one code of chivalry. And in fact, I went to a conference where there was a whole panel where people were discussing, like, what is chivalry? So there are some basic ideas that everybody kind of considers as being chivalrous one was being very faithful right so you have to be you have to be a christian you have to follow all of the christian tenets so you have to be charitable you have to be faithful you have to go to mass so that is a major part of chivalry another part is that you have to be generous another part is that you have to be courageous so chivalry is meant to be it, the word comes from horse right so you have to be a horseman a knight to be chivalrous to begin with so you have to have the money enough to be generous, or at least the personality enough to be generous, courageous on the battlefield, and a good Christian knight. And you also have to be kind to women, especially widows, and also orphans. So it's, there is no one code, you can find several of them. And in the book, you'll see I refer to several different ones. So there isn't one like you swear to, but it came from well, lots of different ideas. This is a military society in that you have knights all, always being trained all the time. 
they didn't have standing armies, but they had knights all the time. And also there were ideas that were developing about how to treat ladies and stuff. So they rolled that into this is the correct behavior for knights. You know what I mean? So it, it comes from many different places, but it really sort of solidifies in the 12th century when people start writing down a chivalrous knight should do these things. Why? Oh, did, did people that were not knights, did they follow that code as well and the, the normal serfs and the and the folk or or were women treated less than a chivalrous response would be okay Oof, this is a big one <laughs> okay so because chivalry is really based on christian ideals i think you could fairly say that most peasants were following most of the tenets Anyway, they could not, by definition, be chivalrous because they didn't have knightly training. They didn't have a horse. There is one guy, um, and I think it's Jeffrey de Charnay, who says, you know, without a horse, you are not a knight. <laughs> like you, so you're close if you're following the Christian tenets as a peasant. As In terms of ladies, chivalry is a double-edged sword because you are meant to do things that put you on a pedestal, but you don't have a lot of agency. And so... Like there is a whole, it's very complicated in that there are things that suggest that if a knight is really good to you, then you owe him, you know, you owe him your love, you owe him a kiss or whatever you owe him. And these are dangerous ideas. Right? These are not good ideas. Like love itself should not be transactional as we all know. So there are these ideas that are not really great for ladies at the time, but at the same time, they were... In the 14th century, especially when you had chivalry being a way of life, this is also a time when they might have had a few more rights. So it's it's a very complicated topic. Would you want to be a woman in the Middle Ages? Not really. But they did have more rights, legal rights, and things that they could do than some ladies in other centuries, in later centuries. So, yeah, it's, it's not – if you went back to the Middle Ages, you'd want to be the king. <laughs> You wouldn't want to be a lady. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that, because earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that um, the lady was in a prearranged marriage. Was that really common uh, back then, or was that just amongst the royals to solidify power and, and, and to do that sort of thing? See, these are such good questions. You're right. You're right that Yay! it was, yeah, it was more common, much more common amongst the aristocracy. And this is because marriage was a way of transferring land, right? Because you had dowry, the land would come with people. And so these alliances were made mostly amongst the aristocracy. So if you hear about someone getting married at the age of 12, for example, that is going to be an aristocrat. That is not going to be a regular person on the street. And that is because they want to solidify those ties early and before it can be like undone right while there's still good blood let's solidify the ties that being said uh, a lot of times the marriage wasn't consummated at that point because the person was too young the girl was too young it was dangerous to have children that young so consummation might happen later but sometimes people were married at the age of 12 but those would be aristocrats yes brilliant because i was going to ask you about that because as we know um especially back then i would assume since, you know, they didn't have as many artificial hormones and that kind of thing as we had today, that a 12-year-old girl in the Middle Ages was really a 12-year-old girl, not somebody who 
look like a woman who was a 12 year old girl. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know a lot about the biological differences that you're getting at. Like, and even now, the moment that a woman reaches maturity is going to be different. Like it could be nine, it could be 14, could be anywhere right. in there. But we do know that sometimes people consummated their marriages. And we know this because there's a pregnancy that comes from it. And people are not super into that. For example, the father, the, the mother of um, Henry VII, Margaret Beaufort, had him at the age of 12 or 13. And people were like, oh, it's kind of young. You know, so it wasn't something that happened a lot. People would wait because it was safer. Like once you have this marriage that's keeping your alliance together, why risk it with childbirth? You know, so um, in terms of the peasants and everybody else, they waited until later to get married, which meant that they had more agency. Right. So even though your parents probably had a say in who you married, you also had a say in who you married. And maybe it was somebody that you met through work or you met, you know, at church or something like that. They had more agency and they usually worked through their teen years to save money, to become apprentices, to get skills. And they usually married in their late teens and early 20s. What was childbirth like back then? And what was the degree of mortality that women uh, had to face? Because, you know, well... I assume it was a lot higher mortality rate for mother and baby than there is today. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a very high rate of mortality because it's dangerous business. But there it wasn't completely primitive either. Like people weren't just kind of left in the woods to to give birth. (laughs) There were midwives who would have had experience. They've been around the block before and they would have seen things that were like risky situations, dangerous situations and taking care of them. So, you know, for example, that if a baby was in the wrong position, that a midwife would use coconut oil or they would use butter on their hands and they would like turn the baby. So we know that like they're able to do that. We know that they had the power. Anyone who was at the birth had the power to baptize a baby if it looked risky so that the baby would make it into heaven. They didn't have to wait for a priest because it was so dangerous. And then we do have moments where if the mother was like just about dead, already dead, there would be cesarean as well because they like they knew you only have a few minutes. You have to have this baby come out. So it was a very dangerous business. It's still a dangerous business now. It's very dangerous, like statistically for certain populations today. So we can't really underestimate like how dangerous this was. But that said, people weren't just like, oh, what's happening as if it was the first time. (laughs) Like there was a lot of medical treaties about that. And um, a lot of midwives, their knowledge, we might not even be able to access because they wouldn't have written it down. Woman to woman. This is just kind of like women's business. It's mostly priests that are writing stuff down. So that wouldn't have made it to us anyway, most of the time. So the uh, history, according to... Robin Hood and the Prince of Thieves says that, that, <laughs> that at one point, because he'd seen them do a, a an, uh, extract a horse from uh, the a horse, that, that he was able to do a cesarean and she lived through it. That probably wasn't very common, I would think. Uh, I mean, a horse cesarean? <laughs> I don't know. This is what I'm saying. Like, cesarean did happen, but like... It's it's super risky. So it didn't happen that often. And it happened when there was no other choice and not usually when the mother 
was alive. So, so when, if the mother had bled to death or, or whatever, and then they would, they would t- t- try and take the baby to save the baby. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they tried it sometimes when the mother was alive, but usually it was after. I wanted to ask you because we talked about this last time and it really I was con- I was not concerned, but I was I was curious okay. about this because because people can are you beginning to see how my mind works? It's kind of weird. Isn't it? <laughs> it goes towards the gore. <laughs> it does. It does. But in this case, I want I wanted to ask, um, because the lifespan was shorter, the life was harder, um, and more, much more difficult. Um, were the, was it kind of a survival of the fittest? Because if the, if the, if you were, if you were weak, you would die young, maybe die without children, um, whatever. And so that your genes would not get passed on and only the strong would mate and survive and do stuff like that. Is that accurate or were they tougher people or do we have any idea? <laughs> well, I think from an evolutionary perspective, if you are born with certain um, propensities to have like disease or to react to something badly or whatever, then things are dangerous for you. But at the same time, it's like dependent on things like what was your diet? Like, did you get enough nutrients? Did you get enough protein? Did you get enough vitamins? And so it's hard to say like this is survival of the fittest when a prince who is getting fed this and a pauper who is getting fed this don't have the same chance. Right. So I think when you're thinking about things like this in terms of like, is it difficult? Is this life difficult? Um, I think you should look at developing nations where they're still dealing with things like water parasites, for example, or they're still doing agriculture where it's very like we need to farm this today or we're not going to eat. You know, I think if you look at those societies, people, humans still living like right now, you get a sense of like what are things like for them. So, you know, if we're here over in North America with a certain level of diet or something, it's not really survival of the fittest if your deck is stacked, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, if if your parents only have you eat macaroni and cheese because that's what they can afford, you're still going to have the same same issues. So, it's um, possible, right? Yeah. So, another question for you <laughs> this is what is, i'm here for yeah, I, I know for. well I, I really just enjoy the conversation because <laughs> you are, you're very gifted at what you do you're very fun and 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 stuff but but a couple of a couple of issues about i'm just a day-to-day peasant life what did they do i mean keep me in mind that christianity was the church of the realm and um that was the Pope, as we discussed last time, the Pope was really kind of up here because he was God's representative on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the, the kings kind of were subservient to him. But mm-hmm. how do they handle things like if someone was um, was was um, um, had Down syndrome right. or or had a uh, a cleft palate or was deformed in some manner or form? How did they handle? Did they try and take care of them, or did they say, "Oh, yeah, well, let's next try again"? Yeah. Well, again, I think we need to take society right now into account, where you have some people who are treated very badly because of a disability, and some people who are supported because of a disability. So, I think that there is a misconception that people thought that if someone is not born perfect, 
then they're like the son of the devil or something, or you should kill them or whatever. This is not really how it was. Like, did that happen occasionally? Probably, but that probably is happening today somewhere, you know? So most of the time people were taken care of. And there are lots of laws on the books that suggest like, if you have um, a person that is born with a, an intellectual disability and they are the heir to something, then there are some legal um, protections in place that make sure that that person is not taken advantage of, that their estate is taken care of until someone else can take it over. So they are cared for. And what's really interesting to me is that you have a lot of people who are going off to war, for example, especially during a turbulent time, like the Hundred Years War. And if they come back with something that is like PTSD or they come back with a head injury and their mental capacity is different, then there are safeguards in place for those people too. So there there were lots of laws that would encourage people to take care of each other. Plus, there's also the human inclination to take care of each other. Like if you've had a baby, you know, and it might not have turned out like quote unquote perfectly, you're still going to love this baby like it's human nature. So I think that it runs the gamut. There are some people who are intolerant and there are some people who are very caring. And I think humans have been the same for 2000 years. So you would find that in the medieval world as well. You know what I'm learning from this is that they were not now, okay, they couldn't drive a car. Uh, buying a horse was probably horribly expensive. Yeah. Uh, um, and that, which is why most people didn't have one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, By and large, they were just people like us just trying to get by. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly the point that I'm always trying to get across is just people trying to get by. And when you read stuff from that time when they write something, you you see that. It's like no time has passed. They're speaking directly to you. Like a monk will write at the end of a, a manuscript like, I've been writing this all day and my hand is so tired. <laughs> like it's just – it's just humans. It's just humans. And I think that we are starting to recognize that more as a society. You're starting to have fewer depictions of medieval people being dumb. And I think that's really good, a good progression because, yeah, I mean, if you were to put one of us back at that time, we would have to figure things out the way they had to figure things out. And I think if you brought someone forward, they would be able to master a smartphone in an afternoon. Like these are just people. And they would really like indoor plumbing because I tell you what, that was that's what I'm, I'm convinced that that's why the population was kept down. Nobody wanted to come here because of lack of indoor plumbing. <laughs> population was brought down by the Black Death. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that, that also, I want to talk to you about that. But first, I, um, how did they handle Because I haven't heard a thing about this aspect of it, but um the statistics will tell you that at any given time, 10% of the population is, is homosexual. Okay. Um, and at least, at least from my perspective, and you may have a different number, um, but how do they handle, how do they handle homosexuality? Oh, this is a really good question. Now I will say, cause you asked, I don't know statistically what the population was at any given time. And there would be no way to find out in the middle ages because technically it was a sin. But that being said, you sometimes had people who would be um, 
punished if they were out, what we would say as out. And then you'd have sometimes people who were just living kind of under the radar and nobody cared and nobody said anything. Like they would be looking at the neighbors and saying, oh, those roommates are awfully close. And they might know, they might guess, but they're not in the bedroom. They don't know. And do they care enough to bring it to the church? Probably not. If like this person down the block is really nice, they don't necessarily want to out them to the church. But we do know that there were people who were in relationships that were definitely homosexual relationships. And some of the stories are really sweet. We have stories of like one nun writing to another nun saying like, I love you. Can't wait until we're together again. Things like that. It was technically a sin. So, you know, people would draw attention to it if if they were basically had something against that person most of the time, right? Like if it's not bothering you, then other people just left it alone. Most of the time, the problem arose not from having like lusty thoughts. Sometimes like in the rule of St. Benedict, he's like, the novices should not bathe with the elders. It's just a bad idea. And we can read the subtext there. <laughs> like, it's tempting. <laughs> it's tempting to have these young men around. But the problem came when people were subverting what were thought of as natural gender roles. So we have, for example, one trial where there was a woman in Germany who was living as a man. And she was in a relationship with another woman. And she was like in this relationship as, as a man, as like... In, I should mention that in the Middle Ages, they only thought there were two sexes, right? So now right. we recognize many genders. At the time, they, they thought there were two. So for this woman to live as a man, this was a transgression. And this is the real reason that Joan of Arc was burned, not because they thought she was like a witch. It's because she was wearing men's clothes. So she was living as man. And whether Joan was trans or not, that's what they got her for. Like that was what they pinned it on. So when they put her back in jail after she recanted and they only gave her men's clothes or nothing and she put on the men's clothes, then it was it for her. So probably was cold and she needed to warm up. And she was in, as Helen gets at in the book, like her book, she was in a prison full of men without the right clothes. So of course she's going to put on these clothes, right? Like, it's going to happen. So, you know, you think about, I think about her story in those terms, but really there were people who were homosexual in the middle ages as any other time, but they would have been living a closeted life most of the time because it was too dangerous to be out. That brings up an interesting point that Joan of Arc was in prison with a bunch of women, or excuse me, a bunch of men, and they gave her men's clothing that if she put them on they were going to burn her at the stake and if she stayed naked she still had the problem of being in prison with a bunch of men who yeah because i assume they didn't have like like today they didn't have a, like a women's wing of 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 the prison no that you were it's you were just there no you got to remember they wanted her to burn that was their objective, right? So they put her in a terrible situation. And I didn't even know that until I read he Helen Castor's book. You know, this is years into me being a medievalist. I didn't know this until I read her book. And then I looked at the transcript and you you see she is very feisty. She talks back. She's very confident. Then she recants. Then there's a space of about three days. And then the way she speaks to the, I don't want to say inquisitors, that's not the right word. The way she speaks to the administrators 
afterwards, she's practically hysterical. She's like so angry and she's so upset. And like they had her, they had her. She had to put these clothes on and then she was in trouble because she was transgressing gender roles. And I'm sure that she had been abused voraciously yes. during that time. I'm sure it was an, a, horrific, a horrific time for her. Yes. It's that's just that's just amazing that one human that, that as human beings we can do that to each other. But it mm-hmm. continues today. I, just a real quick story. Um, you know, we're talking about to, you know that those two nice men that live together. Oh, they're great people. They're in the community and they they help people and they do stuff. <laughs> when my mother moved into when my grandfather died and my grandmother moved into a mobile home, um, she had two neighbors, Dick and Harry. I, I wow! Then that was just <laughs> where's <then> Tom? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I was like 13 at the time, and I remember it never dawned on me, it never crossed my mind, but but I remember them having a conversation. Those are two nice men. They probably are both, you know, widowers, and they just are splitting their living there to save expenses and stuff. So it didn't even dawn on them. And this is like 30 years ago. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you are not drawing attention in the street, then nobody has anything they can accuse you with. So that was the safest way to be with a person that you loved. Right. Well, and the and the, and the thing that you also mentioned was that uh, if you are in a community now, they weren't big cities like we have today. You might have a um, a, a um, um, blacksmith or a a a tailor or somebody like that, that, um, that the, the community needed. And so rather than turn them over to the church, uh, you would say, here, could you mend this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so people were very litigious at the time. They loved to sue each other for all sorts of things, but you do see like, this seems to be bad blood here. Like it doesn't seem to be about the thing they say it's about. So I think, that we don't have as many trials for like what we would think of as homosexuality now um as many as maybe you might think there were and i think this is because people were closeted and keeping to themselves and as long as they you know didn't give people a reason to suspect then they could live a life that was with partner perhaps as you know a quote unquote roommate and get along it is so sad that that uh, we as human beings have to have to put up with that stuff. But you know, I agree with you. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully we're getting better. We're not. We're certainly not there yet. Not and there I yet. think I think in a thousand years, when there's two people having a conversation about this particular time, there'll be there'll be lots of stories that'll be made up about how weird we were um, or <laughs> are a thousand years from now. For sure. I think about that all the time, especially when, you know, the book that I'm writing is called Chivalry and Courtesy. And it's not only about chivalry, but about etiquette. And Ah. so it's making me look at people today, you know, and our table manners and how they're similar and how they're different and how people are going to look back on us. (laughs) (laughs) How good are our table manners these days? I mean, they're very similar, right? We have books that are books of etiquette, mostly written for boys. Um, because these are these are the boys that are going to read, right? They're in school, so that's why they're dedicated to boys. But they're saying things like, 
don't talk with your mouth full. Don't put your elbows on the table. Make sure you're not like blowing your nose on your sleeve. Like, it's so similar. It's the same things that make us grossed out at the table, made them grossed out at the table. So even things like just not talking too much or taking too big a mouthful, like it's very common. It's very similar. That's because it's it's irritating when somebody's eating with their mouth open and stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so now we're our time together is growing short. First of all, will you come back again sometime? I really enjoy talking to you. Of course, of course. This is really fun for me. And you ask like the best questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. You make me work hard, but in the best way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta ask you, um, because it, it, of course we've just came through our very own pandemic. Mm -hmm. um how bad really was black death it was unimaginable unimaginable because the death toll was somewhere between a third and a half of the entire population so that means every second person is gone and animals and people it's just devastating to a point that like i think is unimaginable so animals caught the Black Death as well. Yeah. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so not not only were they dying, their animals that they were planning on having for dinner on Sunday were dying, and they couldn't eat them anymore either. Well, I mean, I'm doubting myself a little bit. It's one of those things where you've heard something so long ago that you doubt yourself. But I think they were also dying because there was nobody to feed them. You know. So yeah, it oh. was it was it was terrible. It was a terrible time. Now, going back in, have they figured out exactly what it was? Was it the rats? Was it the fleas on the rats? What was it? Yeah, it was fleas. And for anybody that wants to know anything about the Black Death, and hopefully I'm not, like, saying the wrong things here, uh, Monica Green is the person to go to. She is just an amazing scholar. She knows everything about the Black Death. But it was a bacterium called Yersinia pestis. And this still exists. Like you could catch it in Arizona. You could catch the Black Death from a rodent. <laughs> but the difference is that we have antibiotics. You could catch it early and you could kill it with antibiotics. They didn't have that at the time. And so it just, it just wiped people out. I heard a story and I want, I want to get your opinion on it. Um, is, guy was saying that in the in the Middle Ages, during the time of the Black Death. What, by the way, what time period was this? The Black Death. It's it hit like most of Europe in 1347. So this was just it was there and then it was gone. No, no, no. First of all, it, it started in Asia, as far as we know. That's when the migration of everything starts in Asia, apparently. No, like. I don't want to say this as if like it is the fault of anyone. It's not the fault of anyone. It's probably the fault of climate change. And so these rodents were on the move. And there just happened to be a population, a pocket of this bacterium in Asia. And it moved through Europe into Africa everywhere. So it was everywhere. And now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't... I... <laughs> I wasn't that yet because another question came in in the middle of that question and so I asked the other one and then now I'm going to finish up this one. Now the, um, the 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 individual was saying that cats, by and large, were not domesticated in the Middle Ages. Is that true or is that well, like what 
is your definition of domesticated? Like, were they fed by people? Were they housed by people? Yes, they were like pets, but they didn't usually like hang out inside all the time. They, they had a job. They were mousers, you know? <laughs> and it, which brings me to there were people that had an, an abundance of cats that would go and they would um, take care of the rat population and therefore take care of the um, flea population. And so there were pockets of people that were by and large unaffected by the black death or was it, uh, is that, cause then he's, then he said that they were considered heretics because, and devil worshipers because they, you know what I mean? You know, somebody's going down that road and I don't think yeah. that was accurate. Okay, so what I would say is there were definitely places, and we don't know why, that weren't as affected by the Black Death. We don't we don't know. Could be anything. It would probably not anything to do with cats. <laughs> I would say it's probably not anything to do with cats. And it was nothing to do with heresy. And and the thing I think it's important. So I did a TED talk, and if you listen to my TED talk, you'll hear me kind of rant about this. When the Black Death hit, people did anything, anything to try and stop it. So like COVID. I'm not underestimating the impact. It has killed millions, but it has killed like 2% of the people I think that it infected or something like that. Whereas the Black Death, we're talking about 50%, sometimes 60%. Like people did anything to stop it. And so sometimes they thought praying would do it. Sometimes they thought like covering their face, smelling something that would like counteract these nauseous vapors. They tried anything. So like it wasn't necessarily true that people thought it was caused by you know witches or anything like that there were uh, massacres of jews at this time and there is a really interesting book by a scholar called Safir barzlai who points out where these these massacres happened and these places it wasn't it didn't start out as like anti-jewish propaganda but it was places where it could easily root so for anybody that's interested in in that aspect of the Black Death, where some there were some accusations of well poisoning, um, I did a podcast with Safir about well poisoning. So people should listen to that because it's a very complex topic. But usually people weren't like, it was witches. You know, <laughs> it was like mostly people thought this is a natural disaster. It's probably coming from God, but we don't know why. Why did it? So it seems like not only in the 30s and 40s did Jews have a tough time. It sounds like throughout history and throughout medieval history as well, they had periods of time when they had a tough time. Of course, it was a Christian society mm -hmm. and they were Jewish. Is that predominantly the reason they had such a tough time? Yeah. Yeah. So in a Christian society, from this perspective, people did blame the Jews for Jesus' death, which is complex in many ways, right? Jesus is a Jew himself. <laughs> the time, you know, like if we think about this, it doesn't hold water, never held water ever. Anti-Semitism is based on just people's emotions. But um, what I think it's important, maybe I should mention that um, in the Middle Ages, especially the Jewish people were kind of pushed into money lending. And I think this is one of the roots of anti-Semitism that has kind of continued. And this was because Christians were not allowed to loan money at interest because interest was basically creating something out of nothing and only God could create something out of nothing. So we shouldn't have interest because that's like creating something out of nothing. So 
they got around this in many creative ways saying like this is a late fee or you know like <laughs> people people will be people right so um you could as a jewish person legally you could loan money at interest so it could be a good opportunity for you and at sometimes in some places this was a problem but it's mostly just that like humans in general are not really great with minority populations it doesn't really matter who they are it's just easy to point at you know a minority and say it's their fault or whatever so again like i've on several different podcasts talked about like anti-semitism in the middle ages not specifically like one podcast on it but it's come up in a few different ones again like safrir's is probably the best one to start if you want to learn about anti-semitism in the middle ages again a really complex topic and i don't want to give it short shrift here because it is very important it's it's i think it's huge because yeah. what happened in the past as we know if we don't if we don't listen to history we're yeah. doomed to repeat it yeah yeah and that's that's why i'm so glad that you're doing this work because it really is number one it's fun for me because i get to learn all about stuff that i didn't know and uh and I get a much better picture of what it was like. As an example, in those days, when during the Black Death, they didn't have ambulances. Yeah. They didn't have hospitals per se. They had small, small things. Maybe the larger ones would have somewhat of a hospital, but mm -hmm. there were there, there were 50% of the people were dying. They had people. And they must have had fires going all the time and, and trying to um, get rid of the germs that the, that the dead people still had in them. And, yeah. you know, and that would be so yucky. It was horrific. Like, to illustrate the point, there was one river that the Pope just blessed the entire river saying, like, if you have a loved one whose corpse is in the river because, they, like, there's no place to put them, we don't have a big enough pit we can't burn them all if they've been thrown in the river they are blessed they will go to heaven like it's to the that point where the pope's blessing an entire river to make sure that people will go to heaven and when i think about this time i think about first responders right today first responders were right in the line of fire with covid they always are right and at that time it was priests and i think we don't maybe Think enough about the priest that went to a sick house and then went to another sick house and then went to another sick house just because they were dedicated to making sure that people had their last rites. Like these are people that I think kind of disappear from history, but they are people I think we should remember, even if we're not Christians, like that dedication to caring for people, I think is so important to think about. Dedication to humanity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree with you 100%. I, th I think that I think that we, even, well, even today, I was going to say, well, but even today, um, we are not nearly as kind and as caring for each other as I hope that uh, we will be in the future. So let me ask you, you're a student of history. Right. You've been working on, you know, the, the, the Middle Ages for, and that thousand-year period and you've seen the evolution going from the Middle Ages to the um, the or the um, uh, what, what was the next period? Well, I call it early modern, but some people call it Renaissance. Ah, that knows early modern. I, I agree. With you. I, don't, <laughs> I don't think they were any more sophisticated as they were in the previous thousand years. But no. in studying all of that, 
from mm-hmm. the year thousand to now 2023 mm-hmm. what do you see happening for us in the next thousand years oh what a good question i think we are um we are in a dangerous moment in some ways because up until now the history of humans has always been about community where like like in person community where you know your neighbor and you can ask for help or like you spend time with them face to face and we are spending less time face to face even if we're doing it over a zoom like more times we're texting each other but we're not we don't have that face time and at least for me like this is total personal opinion I feel like that FaceTime, that understanding, that expression, that synchronicity that happens when you're face to face is such a human, like a rich part of the human experience. And I think that the more distance we are from each other, the less compassion we might have for each other. So I do think like this is a moment in which we need to be really conscious about our compassion. So this is like a really key part of my work. I figure if I can get you to think about the people in the past as just being a regular person, just hanging out then you can probably extend that to anybody that you meet today or think of across the world. Like that's just a regular person just going through their stuff, just doing their best. And I think thinking about people in relation to um, how they might be feeling, what they might be dealing with, just allows us to have a better experience between people. So I'm hoping that we don't lose sight of that, those moments of gathering like let's get together and like have a big dinner or have like I don't know back in the you're talking about the 30s people used to have like dances and stuff like let's get together um and I'm hoping that we don't lose that even though we have maybe tight social media connections like that we have time together like as a community so then we have this like compassion for people which is just built in that is beautifully said thank you very much I just made it up on the spot, but no, it's true though. Like I do compassion is at the heart of my work. And we, as people need to understand, well, as an example, throw, throw in global warming with all the other stuff that we've got, which is, you know, mm-hmm. we, people stop to stop to think or don't think about the fact that the, that the internal combustion engine um, really came to prominence no more than 110, 115 years ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and everything's changed. In 100 years, everything's changed. And we've got to figure it out because if, if in, in another 100 years, things are going to be changing even even more so. And I'm, I'm real hopeful that we can work together to figure it out. But in, in to do it, we're going to have to do it all together. We yeah. can't. We can't get into our little communities and our little, I'm, I'm this way and you're that way. And that means that you're less than, we can't do that anymore. Yeah. I would agree with you. And I do have hope because like history goes through cycles, things are bad and then they perhaps are good or things are good for this person. And then, you know, someone helps them out if they need help or something like that. I do think that as humans, we are built to help each other. And I do think we have the opportunity. We can do it. We can be like, a, a global community but we have to actually put the work in <laughs> it's not just gonna happen like it's not just gonna just overnight become utopia if we want a better world we have to work for it did you ever did you ever think that there would be eight billion people on the planet <laughs> no because i can't even pace her eight billion of anything <laughs> like it's just beyond my imagination that many people 
It, and yeah, yeah, you know, I'm from Northern Ontario and there's still a lot of space between people. And it's just, it's mind blowing what this planet can hold. It, it really is. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> conversation with one guy and he said, can you imagine the pile of poop that's left by eight, eight, eight billion people? Yeah, we got to find a use for that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, Danielle, uh, your website again is? DanielleSabolski.com. And you've got a book you can buy, right? And you got yes. another one coming. Yeah, I've got this book that's coming out as number five. So if you go to my website, you'll see, you know, the other ones. The most recent one is How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life. And in that one, I bring together like modern psychology and the monastic point of view. So that, I I think it's a fun one. It was it was a good experience writing that one. I always have a podcast, I too. <laughs> I know and you podcast. are a podcast no, and a Ted a TEDx talk person and uh, yeah. and you you're you're very gifted at what you do and you're just you're just delightful and I would I have to have you net back now because we were going to talk about the monk and the the monk's <laughs> medieval uh, wisdom but yeah. I, mean, it, I just I'll, got, I'll come back I'll come back <laughs> <laughs> I want to have you on KKNW again that's where we want to go next Sure. Um, and we'll and we'll and we'll talk about that. How's the, the, your podcast going, by the way? And it's the medieval podcast. Where can they, is it like as they say, just go to your favorite podcast channel. Yes, your favorite podcast channel. You will find it. And I mean, I gave it like a really bland title so that it would be easy to find the medieval podcast. It's going really well. We, um, I say we, but it's it's like basically a one woman show for the most part. And uh, I'm at almost 200 episodes. This is my fourth year. And uh, I talk to amazing experts every week. It's just my opportunity to show off other people's expertise. And it's just a joy every week. I'm glad you do it. See, you, you've got, I don't know, you've got like a life. So you do like <laughs> one a week, right? Yeah, I do one a week. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know I do, that I have a life, but <laughs> I do I one do, a week. I do five to eight because I have no life. Um, so... <laughs> I, I talk to people and I enjoy talking to people like you and stuff. So I've got 440 episodes up. So there. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's but impressive. Then, but then again, that's because I have no life. <laughs> or you just love your job. Well, this isn't my job. I retired from my job. Now this is what I do. And I don't know if I, if I don't know if I exactly knew what I was getting myself into when I, when I took this on, but it's important. Yeah. Uh, there are very few it's can I vent can I vent just a little bit it's your podcast you do what you got to do <laughs> <laughs> well I thank you <laughs> I went looking for on terrestrial radio which is just you know your AM and FM stations mm -hmm. I went looking for a positive um, syndication or positive group of stations that were not talking about right-wing politics or left-wing politics they were talking about health and vibrancy and helping each other and all being being one and working there ain't no such critter mm -hmm. i think there is quite a rich amount of that stuff in the podcasting space but i don't know about the it's, regular ra radio space which there are 86 million people who turn in tune into radio every week 
and those people if they're not if they're not understanding and they're not into podcasting they don't have the opportunity to they don't, they don't even know that that opportunity exists mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so they're all thinking that everything is in the right wing or and and people that are are conservative tend to go to other places where people are confirming their opinions as are the the uh, progressives and they're going to places that feed their opinions and the more we do that, the less chance of us ever getting together becomes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so easy because of the way that the algorithms are designed to give yeah. yourself an echo chamber. And I don't think it's always intentional. I think that we get outsmarted by the machines that we've programmed and they just feed us what they think we want to hear. You wait for the next couple of years. Uh, have, you, have you been following artificial intelligence? Um, I have to a point because I used to teach at a community college, as you know. And so like the, these chat GP, GPT, I don't know what the, <laughs> what the letters are, but the chat that thing one, that one here. that's creating stuff. It's like, I would not want to be a teacher right now because wow, it's getting very smart, but not smart enough. <laughs> no. And, um, um, but, but it is smart enough to where you can plagiarize it and and make it easier for yourself um so but yeah. kids so nowadays if you can type a, a a keyword in and know the the algorithm then you can do you can do pretty much anything so anyway yeah. i could talk to you for hours but we've been doing this a whole hour so i need to let you go <laughs> yeah um, it's dinner time here near toronto we gotta eat <laughs> yes it's, it's is it six o'clock there yes it is yeah Okay, well, and she's, ladies and gentlemen, she's kicking us off because she's got to go have dinner now. <laughs> you started it. <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> Danielle, thank you so much for being here, and I really, really enjoy having you here. Go to her thank website. You. Go to the podcast. Uh, she, she's just delightful, and I, and I thank you for educating me um, about everything that you're doing. You're a very smart lady, and I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Kevin. <laughs> Wait right there. I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got. <laughs>